G'day ladies and gents, welcome to Life of Mine, the go-to mining podcast. Matty Michael here and I'm here each week to bring you the down-to-earth Aussie perspective of mining and everything it encompasses. There's something for everyone and you'll have a laugh along the way. So if you're looking for an unpolished, informative education session about mining and whatever else we feel like talking about, Life of Mine is where you want to be. Right. In this episode, I've got with me the head man of NTEC coming in for a round two, Shane McClay. And we're going to relive the Browns Creek underground mine flood disaster from 1999 in New South Wales, in which Shane was a shift boss for during his time with Elton. Unbelievable story of a coincidence and luck and, and an amazing outcome with no injuries. Some of the stuff Shane recaps sounds like it's straight out of a Hollywood movie. Unbelievable story. So, anyway... Without further ado, let's get into it. Check in the portal. Copy, shift boss. I got a radio check. Yeah, radio's working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. The chair in the vent bag. Yeah, stitch her up there. Thanks, mate. Yeah, right, copy that. Right, I'm in for barbecue day. The famous client uh, entertaining technique Shane's got at, at Entech. Barbecue day. Good way to do it. Cheaper than taking them to Coco's or anything, isn't it, Macca? Yeah, it doesn't doesn't cost much for a burger and a snagger. So, and a ginger beer, twelve o'clock. And a ginger beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm pretty pretty excited about that. Um, now, Macca, what, what do you know about floods? Um, Just generally. Well, I have some experience, um, specifically one. So, yeah, I suppose what I wanted to chat about today was an incident that happened. Um, just over 20 years ago um, in New South Wales when I was shift boss. Yeah. I, I actually had to look at it at, on the map today. So it's pretty much, we're talking about Browns Creek. So it's near Bathurst and Orange. So essentially one of the coldest parts of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> bloody freezing. Um, it was a shock to us from Western Australia, but it gets pretty cold out that way being uh, around Orange. And I reckon Blaney, which sits in the triangle from um, Bathurst and Orange um, is colder again than Orange. Yeah, very, you know, it's low-lying inversions and um, the dog's water bowl froze over one night is how yeah. cold it gets there. So, yeah, a bit of a shock to the system. I, I actually went for a, a hockey tournament back in the younger days. Like we used to go to Bathurst and Lithgow. Okay. We had one at Bathurst. I think we had one at Lithgow as well. Same sort of area and just... I think say the best way to explain it's colder than a mother-in-law's kiss. It's, it's <laughs> that's for sure, and especially for Australians, it's cold for Australians because we don't know what to do with cold. We don't have the right clothes and the right anything. So you know, in Canada, that's um, it's not cold, but for us, yeah, we struggle. How'd you how'd you end up over there? Give us a bit so, of context of where where you were in your career and how you actually ended up in a Campbellborn boys ended up working in. Cold as hell, New South Wales. Yeah, um, me and my girlfriend, fiance at the time, who's now my wife, Karen, we took a year off in '99 and went overseas. And um, we, yeah, for for twelve months, went to Canada and the U- and the US and also Europe. And uh, when we got back, I rang up my boss, um, Tony Syme, and said, "Right, I'm ready to go back to work." He sent me to Longsharp. Three weeks later. Western Mining closed the place, and sometimes you said, "Well, I've got a job for you in New South Wales." So, so it was with Elton. I was an Elton graduate, um, and was an Elton graduate, and worked there for five years. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of went where I was told, and ended up over there shift bossing. First job shift bossing. 
Yeah, right. And yeah, that's what you you wanted to. You said you're ready. I'm go. I'm re- I'm ready to go. Shift boss. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty much done my time underground and done a bit of time as a um, as a site engineer for Elton. And yeah, re- ready to ready to get the shift boss out of the way. There you go. Now, how big was New South Wales mining back then compared um, well, to WA? Parks existed and um, Ridgeway existed. So they were, they were kind of the, the big ones. Nobody knew much about Browns Creek. So really, they're the only mines that I knew about at the time. So there was a bit going on um, around that time. Yeah. So Browns Creek, give us a bit of an idea of what the what the mine was. Okay, let's... I'm gathering Elton was the underground contractor there at the time. Yeah. Um, what are we talking about? Gold mine, underground, open pit, mixture of both? Yep. Um, now, I was an underground, you know, I was only an underground miner at the time, so I didn't know all the details and what it, what the stats of the mine were. Um, but it was a reasonable grade. It was about eight grams, I believe. Um, not exactly sure how many tonnes a year, but it wasn't a huge mine. Um, it was an open pit that went down about 100 metres vertical and then the underground went for about 400, three, well, probably about 400 after that. So the mine was about half a K deep, um, one jumbo, one solo, two trucks, um, service crew, charger. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And this, this is when gold prices were... Shit house. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. But... As you said, eight grams a tonne, like that's not bananas yeah. of grass. Yeah, the, it's like, the, how, how, did mines, how did everyone do it economic back then? Oh, look, you know, that, that's reasonable grade. So I think it just ticked along. And it was lean and mean. Like, we, there was no fat anywhere in that system. Like, it was a pretty lean mine, you know, even today's standards. Um, yeah, so, yeah, just lean and mean and reasonable grade. Yeah. So how long were you before this leading up to the – to the incident, the the flood we're going to talk about today. How long were you there doing your shift bossing before the actual? Nearly happened? twelve months. Yeah, nearly twelve months. Yeah, had a good head around the mine. Yep, all, all over it, and uh, wasn't far off. You know, going back to WA at that point in time. Yeah. So, the, and we're leading up to Christmas as well, wasn't it? Yep. So uh, the incident happened a couple of days before Christmas, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's set the scene. Let's set the scene. We're going. We're going into the shift. So you were night shift. Yes. Correct. Yep. So we were night shift. Um, it was our second last night shift before our days off over the Christmas period. Yeah. So uh, just had the handover with the other shift boss, and um, you know we'd been having some water issues underground. Um, more water been coming out of stopes and. And, um, you know, we'd probably, down the bottom of the mine, we probably doubled the amount of water that we're used to over probably two or three months. Um, so there was something going on, but we didn't really, you know, think much of it. It was just something that we had to manage underground. Yeah. So just a typical wet mine. So I gather you'd have like 37 kilowatt pumps at the at the decline face or... Yeah, we, we it wasn't that wet, so we're only using 20... 20 kilowatt pumps, but we made a lot of, you know, made a little dam and pipes and, you know, into monos and, and that type of thing. So we were a bit, um, you know, creative in our thinking on how we we're going to move water and dam it and put it here and there. And, but I think, you know, what, what was came increasingly obvious to me is a pump station a little bit further up. We had to put a mono in that pump station because it was getting overwhelmed with the water that was coming down there. So that kind of set the scene for our shift. You know that that day or that evening. Yeah. So 
Were, is this where your passion for pumping and infrastructure come about? Because it sounds like it wasn't a wasn't your typical, as you said, my well, you had to be a bit creative with how you pumped the water. Is that was this your, your, I guess your first taste of really focusing on the importance of pumping and infrastructure? Probably not. I think right from starting as a graduate with Elton, um, you know, even Cananabel and whatever, I was always you know, intrigued by how these things work and, and how to move water around efficiently. So it started there. And then when I went to Black Swan, that was an absolute debacle um, in the early days with water. Um, uh, yeah, big, big problems with water when I got there as a young engineer and um, solved that problem with lots of monos and poly and, and cleaned that up. So um, that probably tied me in good stead to try and fix a few problems <laughs> at Browns Creek, but there was one problem I couldn't fix. So the like the water problems you had leading up to it, just when you say like, you know, it was a wet mine, where what, what was the thinking of it up until then? Was it just groundwater? Was it seeping through from the pit? What was... What well, was the general thinking of what it yeah. was and how you're going to control it? Look, there's, there was, they were aware of this underground aquifer that was out in the hanging wall um, that would, had been hit with a diamond drill hole a few years ago and caused them a lot of problems a few years beforehand. Um, so they were aware that there was, you know, uh, underground aquifers, aquifers around there. So, um, yeah, and, you know, that obviously seeped through, um, you know, different structures. So it wasn't like one area where the water was coming out. It was, you know, just generally coming out of um, a few different areas. So, um, you know, the mine pumped about 80 litres a second, which is kind of wet for WA, but, you know, not not terrible. So that was all well managed. But I think the problem was it was just increasing down the bottom, um, you know, out of a stoke that we were bogging and bogging and bogging. So, yeah. you know, that was kind of the start of the issue. So that, that diamond drill hole that, got intersected did they was that like van roof plugged off or how did they actually control that when they hit it oh, do you know maybe a bit of folklore on this one but it was because it was before my time and it was 22 years ago but um they actually lost a, a fair amount of the decline for a long time and they managed with some big pumps to get that back down and i i believe and i was told that there was almost scuba type situation to get that final van roof into it yeah so right. i'm not i'm not exactly sure if that that's true but that's what i was told that they were using scuba gear to to get in and, yeah. and put the van roof in and and do what they had to do so yeah there was you know they knew that there was a fair bit of water somewhere there how for a non-mining listener what is the best way you could explain a van roof plug that is a really good question. I don't know, I suppose how, I don't it's just know a, how you'd explain it either. If you've got a hole in the wall, uh, it's just a, a pipe with a packer. So as you push it in there, um, it locks into the wall and seals it, and then the water comes out in the middle of the pipe. Yeah, yeah. So you can actually, like, you're just essentially putting a tap on it. Yeah. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah. Yep, pipe and tap. So some of the some of the names involved, there's a, a the yep. transcript that you sent me, there's a couple of yep. famous names I recognise, especially one of the sh your, one of your cross shifts, one of the other shift bosses. Who, who oh, are yep. some of the folks working? So the, the other two, so we worked a three-panel roster. Um, so my cross shifts were Chris Wish-Wilson and Mick Naylor. Um, May so, rest in peace, Mick Naylor. Yeah, yep, uh, yep. Terrible news throughout the year. Mick was my, the, one of the first foremans at, Bar Minko, what I was when I was at Paulson's doing my grad time that I started going underground with yep. when I was straight oh, out of uni. Great, yeah, absolute yeah. legend. No, there you go. Yep. So they were my cross shifts, and um, I can't remember which one was my cross shift the night of the incident, but I think it was Mick. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, good man. Yeah, yeah. So, right, let's get let's get into the actual shift because we, we've got the barbie. I don't want to be late for All the right, barbecue. No, we can't, either. Be, can't be late for the barbie. <laughs> so, start from start All from. Right, so, what was going on? So, so we had a we had a chat with the with the um, cross shift, and and he said, you know, the water's increasing, da da da. And you know, from the days previous, I realised we had to move a mono pump. So there was one in one part of the mine. We had to move it to another, which is an existing pump station that was all set up for three monos, I only had two in it, and we had to put one in there. So um, uh, the, the foreman and everyone had gone home by then, we did a six, six to six, and uh, I made the call to grab uh, Ralph, um, which is named, his real name is Adrian, funny enough. But um, so me, me and Ralph, uh, I think he's still at Cadia, good man. Um, so we, we well, it was jumbo service day, and uh, I told him, for whatever reason, look, we need to fix this. This is really important. Um, we didn't have all, you know, lots of people on site, so leave the jumbo in the workshop. Now, that had never been done before, yeah. ever. I'm sure, yeah. you know, a contractor leaving the jumbo in the workshop. Yeah. Cardinal you know, sin. Cardinal sin. Yeah. But, you know, I knew the importance of getting this in and we needed kind of all hands on deck and we had a stoke to bog and da-da-da. So... First, first uh, hole in the cheese. Yeah, first <laughs> hole in the cheese of luck. Um, there's a lot of luck in this story. So me and Ralph went down there and we were moving pumps. So we had ITs and, and whatever and that was our job and, and off we went. So, so we were doing that. We were bogging in the mine at that time, um, trucking, um, you know, doing our thing. So, um, you know, our bog operators were Flog, which is Daniel Devine. I think he's... Well, last I heard it was Acadia and, um, and POS, and I've got no idea where POS is these days, but people who know POS will know POS. You get, it's been you get around the a long time, no Camp Elder. No one in mining gets called their own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Can't even remember POS's name, but anyway. Um, yeah. And then, you know, a couple of truck drivers, um, Shane Clower, uh, sorry, his brother, Glenn Clower. And, um, I think Matt Hando was our other truck driver, but, um, you know, they were doing their thing up and down the mine. Um, two days earlier, uh, the diamond drillers knocked off for the year and they were working at the bottom of the mine. Really? Another, yeah. another piece of luck. Yeah. Right there. So they were in like so a they deep there. stockpile. They the weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. And just to put it into context, so they were pontil. Just to put it into context, um, this is three months after the parks, um, disaster, the air blast disaster that killed, um, four or six people. Can't remember now. But two of those people were pontil drillers really? that died Jeez. in that. So there's just a bit of context there. So yep. the pontil drillers had left two days earlier, so they weren't there. Anyway, we um, we did our thing. Uh, we went and we put this this pump in. Charge up went down. Charged up some headings at the bottom of the mine. Um, we were about working at about 130 meters vertically from the bottom of the mine. Um, rather than talk levels, I'll just you know put the put some scale on it that way. Um, and, uh, the bogger operator, he was working below us. And, um, yeah, so, so we, we got the pump in at about 12 o'clock and 12.30, we thought, well, it's time for crib. We've got to fire some headings. So, so we basically sent most people out of the mine. Well, I sent most people out of the mine at that stage. And, um, and we decided we were going to open the valve and, and the pump would be ready to go. 
So the va- the valve you're saying the yeah so so from, from the from the pump or feeding the pump. So th- this is the valve on the manifold that fed the um, rising main. So yep. the rising main was a fixed, you know, piece of gear in this pump station that had a big, you know, one of those big, you know, six inch or eight inch valves on it. You big, know, yeah, the big, big gate suckers, valve, big, yeah. yeah, big big um, big gate valve with it. Yeah. So so we're all ready to go. Send everyone up. And uh, so we had to open that, and then we were going to go up the crib. We we're going to let Ralph fire his heading and go back down, you know, do our normal 12, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock uh, crib. So anyway, we got on the end of that, and we just could not open that valve. And we had scaling bars on it and <laughs> inching it around. And, you know, so it just seized, was it? Yeah, it hadn't been, you know, there hadn't been a pump there for God knows how long. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we just had to open this valve, and we were, we were away. So... Like we're we're on it, we're you know scaling bars, everything, and it took us a good a good hour to get that. So Flog was there. He he was there. Parked his parked his bogger right across the road from the pump station. He was on it. Me, him, and and Ralph, and took us a good hour. So by then it's like one thirty, getting towards two o'clock. Yep. The guys that we sent up, obviously having an hour and a half crib, you know, waiting for us. We're on the two way. Oh, not much longer. Not much longer. So we're all good. So we finally got it open and mission accomplished and, and, and up we went for, uh, crib. Um, at that time, uh, Ralph, he, he grabbed the, uh, the grader operator who'd just come in. He comes in at two in the morning. Uh, Kenny, Carcor Kenny lived up the road in a town called Carcor. So he come in that and they went down and fired the headings and we went up for crib. And by there, it's getting, you know, it was two thirty, getting close to three o'clock. So if all went smoothly with, the valve and what what time would you normally fired that head and so crib time you would have probably fired 12 12 30. yeah and we would have been back down there so to set the scene you know we would have had the jumbo would have been down the bottom boring yeah um you know luckily the dime drillers went there we would have had a truck two trucks and a bogger you know down the bottom of the mine yeah um and in around about two o'clock um, we also had our solo operator. He used to work his own hours because he was our only one. He used to come in early in the morning. So, um, yeah, another person that could have been working down the bottom of the mine. Yeah. So, um, for, again, for the non-mining folk, um, explain why everyone would be working down the bottom or why when you're in a like a, a development phase and you've got jumbos, why are you – most of the time you're down the bottom of the mine. Yeah, well, you know, the thing about mining is you, you're you always moving. It's not a fixed piece. You know, it's not a factory. Um, people can call them rock factories from time to time, but they are uh, a moving a moving beast. So we have to keep going forward. You know, we're always at the coalface, pardon the pun, um, you know, putting the tunnels in and then doing the production. So all the action is out, you know, at the bottom because as you mine it out, you just keep going deeper. And you keep going deeper. Yeah. So, you know, that's why all the action's down there. So, yeah. So, yeah, and then we uh, fired. So we we fired the headings. Now, these headings that we fired were pretty close to the bottom of the mine within 30 vertical, 20, 30 vertical metres of the bottom of the mine um, and, you know, had nothing to do with what's actually going to happen next. So is that yeah right? That's the that that is the and we'll get into that. It just seems so coincidental that this whole event happened in and around firing. Yeah. So 
Um, so Ralph went down there, and back there the days when we used to fire with fuses. So, you know, just like in the cartoons, you go in there with a lighter and you light a fuse yeah, yeah. and you get out of there as quick as it you was can. was that Wiley Coyote and all that? Yeah, yeah. They were the ones yeah, doing the, with yeah. the Acme boxes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we used to use fuses, not electronics. So you go down there and light the fuse and, you know, I can't remember, you might have a two-minute fuse, so you, you light that and um, off you go. You drive out and then, boom, it goes off behind you. So... Um, so he went down there and did that and drove up, and that probably took him 20, 25 minutes. So by 3 o'clock, Ralph arrives uh, up the top at Crib. So at that one point in time there, everyone was on the surface, apart from Ken. He dropped him off, and he was on his grader up the top of the mine yep. um, r- right out of the action. So um, grading away there, open cap grader, you don't really know what's going on, no two-way, he's all, he's yeah, all yeah, good. Yeah. So. That was three o'clock and then straight away, you know, we'd been up there 20 minutes while, you know, the people that had been working on the pump, it's like, let's get back down there and, you know, set, get ready to set up our next shift, you know, bog some headings and do all of that. So we head off. Um, so the first guy down uh, was truck driver, it was Glenn Clow. Me and Flog were in the ute behind him, not far behind him, but off we go down. So we head down and... Um, we get a call on the two-way, me and, me and Flog, shift boss being myself. Oh, shift boss Shane, you got a copy? It's like, yeah, mate, what's up? Uh, the water's at the 350, and and that is pretty much where we were working on the pump there at about 130 metres from the vertical from the bottom of the mine, so about a kilometre's drive from the bottom of the mine. And, you know, that obviously didn't make a lot of sense because, you know, why would the water be there anyway? So Because the water, for the water to get there... You're essentially to make it sense in 3D. You've got to fill every single void below it to get the water well, up to there. They don't come you, in You would think so, too, but though. well, it, this is where it gets interesting. So it's like, okay, mate, I'm, you know, 30 seconds behind you, just wait there. So me and, me and Flog, we get out of the ute, we walk around the front of the truck and there's a big long straight, like two, 300 metre long straight. And uh, the trucks stand, you know, in the middle of the drive, idling there. We walk around, we stand there, and we look down the drive, and there is a wall of water, full height, five by five, rushing up the decline. Really? Um, and it is. Like it, I've just got a chill thinking about it. Um, you know, when you're in a confined space uh, underground, that's the last thing you want to see. It's so, literally like something out of a movie, like a exactly movie. out of a movie. You, yeah. you know, it was it was incredible. It was Hollywood, like you would not believe. So straight away, um, and it was right near the pump station. You know, coincidentally, that we uh, were standing right there. So Flog's bogger just happened to be right there. So the first thing he did is he ran for his bogger. You know, I didn't have time to tell him that was a good or you know the right decision or not. It was just you know. I got a ute behind a truck with a bogger there, and there's three of us. So we all grabbed our piece of kit. I jump in the uh, the ute. Uh, Glenn starts backpedaling in his uh, truck, like you know, forty mile an hour in reverse, and then Flog jumps in his twenty nine hundred uh, bogger and starts uh, heading back up. So right then, going through my mind is, you know, trying to make sense of what I just saw, and then thinking of where all my people are. Now yeah. I was. I was I was confident, probably not overly confident, but I had a good feeling that you know we were the we were the only ones down there. Yeah. But but you never know. You like you know everything's happening. So well, thank quickly. God it was night shift as well. That's another big thing that you yeah. haven't got all the client the itinerants down yeah. the hole. Yeah, exactly. So 
So we, we start backpedaling like you wouldn't believe. Um, I'm on my way up in the ute by myself, calling on to everyone. I've got my shift sheet there with everyone's name that should be should be on um, and tell everyone to get out. So I get out, I get to the portal um, where the tag board is. I go through all the names there, recall on the two-way to everyone. Yep, yep, we're all on our way up and then go up to the surface and look at the shift sheet um, up there, you know, the big the big sheet, the board, make sure I've got everyone fitters in the workshop, yeah. you know, go through all of that. And at that point, I was pretty comfortable that we had everyone um, still trying to make sense of what the hell was just happening. Um, but that was the time to call the foreman. And, you know, that was about, that was about, mad. well, of course, 3.30 a.m., yeah. um, you know, two days before Christmas. So he's in bed. Probably, so I, probably had a skin full of piss too the night before, being probably. just before Christmas. Yeah. So I'd never, ever called the foreman before after hours. So that was, you know, I was, I was afraid of, you know, of how, you know, I was trying to make sure I was not coming with some, you know, bad news or anything. So that, so I rang him up. Murray Cornelius is his name. I rang him up and said, Murray, it's Shane. Just want to let you know everyone's okay. Nobody's hurt. And I know where everyone is. Jesus, what's going on? And I explained to him what's going on. And so, you know, so we got off the phone and then, and then Murray got called the RM. Um, I think the underground manager was away at the time, Phil, um, Bremner. Um, uh, so he rung, uh, Vin Davies, the, the GM and, and they made their way out there. And, and in the meantime, everyone got to the surface and sat down and, you know, we're just, nobody's talking. We just didn't really know what was going on. And, you know, we just, um, shocked, I suppose, yeah. by it all. And, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, 20 minutes later or so, um, Murray and, and the GM, Vin, arrived. And Shane, you know, I don't know if people know Vin, but he's a big guy and uh, pretty gruff and straight to the point. Shane, come over here. So <laughs> go over there. Felt like talking to the principal. <laughs> go over there. Fuck's, fuck's going on. All right. So I told him what's going on and da 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 and nodded his head. Didn't say a word. All the boys were, you know, sitting over there and he walks over in front of the boys and goes, oh, well, boys, the mind's fucked. Better go and get another job. <laughs> and, and put it more simply than that. You know, so uh, he summed it up and and that's pretty much what happened. The, that that was it. So so just to so, – so what happened is, you know, if I can backtrack a bit when, you know, Ralph come up for crib and, and we started heading back down. One of the things that Ralph said is he heard a noise that sounded like a stoke going off, but um, he kind of dismissed it because he thought, well, you know, it's probably someone walking in the donger in the change rooms or something, you know, banging around or whatever. And right. um, But that was, you know, um, quite interesting. So what, what is interesting about that is it probably – so the, the, the failure probably occurred half an hour after we fired. And the other interesting thing about when we fired, we never fired anywhere near that area. We were a good 50, 80 metres vertically, you know, so hundreds of metres away from where that hanging wall failure um, in that stoke would have occurred. And you only fired development headings. A couple of development headings. Which is is not much. You're not putting much bang in the ground to fire development headings. So, so yeah, may in some way have been the straw that broke the camel's back, but I think it... The timing was it could have happened, you know, easily before, easily after. Yeah. So we were super duper lucky that there was uh, no one down there at the time, um, you know, when that water came in. So, so what, so what happened then is um, by 
So, so just to backtrack again a bit further, to tell Glenn's story, the truck driver. So he came around the corner and then suddenly he had all this mud and shit on his windscreen. Yeah, right. And yeah. So he put his windscreen wipers on and the water was in front of him, a wall of water, and then it suddenly sucked back down the decline. So yeah, he so, watched, so it's like a because it'd be like a surging yeah, current. So, so it? he saw a full five by five decline of water in front of him and then disappear yeah. down to the point where he couldn't see it again. Um, and then <laughs> would have thought it he'd came been up on bloody again. acid or something. It came up again. Yeah. And so this this huge volumes of water, you know, there's obviously a lot of air trapped down there. So it's yeah. air, you know, getting untrapped and um, escaping and pushing water up and pulling it down. And what he said to us, he goes, I don't know if you realise, but where you and Flog were standing in front of my truck, you were in mud there um, because, yeah, there was just shit everywhere. So it was very violent movements of water. Yeah. So, you know, that was probably 10 minutes after the this bang. So you, you're saying where you were standing with that truck, Yeah. that full head of water had been past that had point been and there. sucked back had down been there just and, before and you got back. there. Yeah. 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 So it had been there. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And um, yeah, so so that was uh, pretty interesting. So how much did it fill up the mine? Well, initially in, in the first um, one and a half hours, um, 130 vertical metres of that mine filled up. And we know that because the substation tripped out, the bottom substation yeah. tripped out at that point in time. Because it was underwater. Because it was so, underwater. Yeah. And that was slightly above from where we were, like another 10 vertical metres or so above from where we were. So so even though the water was kind of coughing and spluttering up there, it never actually filled all those voids, that kilometre of decline plus all the stopes, um, for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, but when you think about it, you lose 130 vertical metres in an hour and a half. That's a lot. You know, that's a, a lot of water. So the report estimated that it was um, about 10,000 litres a second for the first five hours of of the failure, wow. which is which is incredible. So to give well, to put that in context, to what a 20 kilowatt pump at the face will pump about say 20 litres a second or something yeah. like that. I assume. Yeah, a normal <laughs> pump we use down the bottom, we do 20, and this is 10,000. So you know it's catastrophic failure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and then you know at 7.30 in the morning, Vin and, and um, the foreman and Stu Matthews, good Goldfields guy now, um, they went down there and the water then was 200 vertical metres from the bottom of the mine within four hours. So obviously it slowed as the mine uh, filled up, but within two weeks the whole mine was full. Yeah. And water was welling out of where the vent fans were. Really? And not that I ever saw that. I, I disappeared not long after that. I, I never went underground there again um, after that day. You took, you took the RM's advice. Yeah, I did pretty much. Got another yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. So Because yeah. to put that in context, when you say 100, 100 odd vertical metres it filled up in an hour and a half, like that's to look, to visualise, it's not like a 100, 100 metre hole that's, you got a you got a, a spiraling decline going down yeah. at one in seven. So hundred oh. meters is about seven hundred meters of of road. It's filled up plus all the levels and and yeah. stopes and that's a and this is, yeah it wasn't a small mine. This wasn't a narrow vein mine. You know, it was, yeah. we had stopes twenty meters wide and 
you know, hundreds of metres long and, you know, we had 2,900 loaders and, yep. you know, 40, 50 tonne trucks. So, you know, these voids were substantial that we had down there. Yep. So, you know, there was a lot of void that got filled up with a lot of water. So that take us to that, to the stope that you were bogging at the time when the, that you said it had, the, you were bogging a lot of waste to get to the ore. You'd had mm. hang, hanging wall failure, hanging wall being the, the angled wall that's sort of hanging over you that, yeah. that falls easily under gravity. What? Yeah. yeah so tell us about that well, stoke though. Again, not being an engineer at the time proper and being, you know, a shift boss, we, we don't really know what's going on in 3D, you know, to, to the extent. Metres and tonnes. Yeah, metres and tonnes, exactly. So, but the main stoke we were bogging um, started, you know, f falling in and we had waste. So we were bogging truck after truck after truck for waste for weeks. And the water in the development, stoping development areas below that, um, or the ore development areas were increasing in water. So there was obviously something going on there with the hanging wall. Somehow connected to these aquifers that, you know, were, were hit, you know, two years ago. And, um, you know, there just must have been that one hanging wall, large hanging wall failure. Um, that was, you know, the pull the plug out, pull yeah. the plug out. And, you know, farmers were not happy because all their, um, all their bores for kilometers all dropped. Um, really? Yeah. It was a big, yeah. big problem for the farmers around and so forth. So yeah. Yeah. Um, basically just pulled the plug on all these aquifers and filled the mine up. Yeah. So the, the mine's called Browns Creek for a reason because it is actually on a creek. And, yeah. um, when they mined the pit, they actually put an engineered wall, um, or an engineered uh, spillway around the pit, um, for the creek. So, um, you know, it, it was a known kind of wet area and, um, and, you know, we had this, where, where the old pit was or where the pit was, we had an area where the, if the creek got too full, it could overflow into the mine, you know, in a controlled area. And we had, um, you know, alarms and whatever, should that ever happen. But little did they ever know that one day the open pit would overflow into the creek. Yeah. And when I went back there about seven, well, five, seven years later, I went and had a look. And to this day, that, um, underground mine, um, into the pit overflows into the creek. And now to, there's trout in there and they use the yep. water for different things. Um, but yeah, it still makes water to this day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is that though? Did they have, no, knowing what you know now, looking back on it, and the, I guess the more engineering side of things, did they have an idea of where this aquifer was in relation to the stopes that they were mining? Uh, I, I think they did. I think they did. But the funny thing was we, we were setting up for some diamond drilling, some exploration diamond drilling, um, knowing full well that we might hit the aquifer because we were putting standpipes in there. Yep. And um, drilling through them. And drilling through them. But we hadn't started that yet. We we just started setting them up. Yep. So, you know, I... I think the mine were doing, you know, what they could and were doing the right thing. So I don't think, yeah. you know, I don't want to talk negligence, but I don't think there was any at all. I think, you know, they were doing their thing um, and managing it the best way they could. So, again, I wasn't in the office. I don't know, you know, who knew what. And, and I didn't get involved in any of the incident reporting or um, investigation afterwards. I just, at the end of that day, before I knocked off that shift, I wrote my little my spiel about what happened that day and never went back. Yeah. You know, next thing I took the old Holden Rodeo back across the Nullarbor. Really? That was, that was me. So is that that mine is to this day 
still flooded. Yeah. Still abandoned. Yep. Still yep. Un, un, no access ever again, essentially. Well, yeah. Would there be a possible way to get to plug it and get back in there. I heard that they were looking at a few options, you know, so drilling some deep holes and concreting, you know, areas and so forth, but I don't know anything about yep. it. But, you know, there was decent grade there and it just kept going. So, um, yeah, I've no doubt that, you know, there there is a uh, an ore body down there, you know, once you can manage the water. Um, yeah, there, you know, the mine was doing pretty well. They were investing in the mine. Um, Funny enough, it just got sold. So the new owners took the keys a week before the flooding. So Hargra- Hargraves Resources had sold it to DRD, um, South African company. Yeah. They just got the keys. A week later, the incident happened. So I wonder if they was- got the insurance with the purchase. <laughs> well, I'm sure there would have been some insurance involved. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I hope so. Yeah. What, now, we're in this quick abandonment that, that took place to yeah. pretty much um, – Hightail yourselves out of there. What's this bloody tidal wave of water's coming? What what machinery was down there? What essentially what machinery and infrastructure did you lose at the time? Well, Obviously, well, the jumbo was on the surface. Jump, yeah, this is the thing, you know. Again, talking about how lucky we were because so much luck involved in this one. Um, you know, jumbo on the surface. We lost a solo rig, yep. and that is about the only bit of mobile gear we lost because the trucks were above, the boggers were above. Um, so did he take that truck, that that trucky that sort yep. of that called? Yeah, up he reversed he it up out. and swung it out. Yeah, um, Flog's bogger that was across, you know, right there, rightly or wrongly, he went and jumped in that rather yep. than going with me behind into the Ute. Yep. So we got that out, um, and yeah, pretty much everything else we got, you know, w- was out of the mine. Um, you know, the grader was further up, the charge up machine was further up, um, I think. Um, actually, maybe not. Not sure about the charge-up machine. So really, it was only uh, a few substations, fans, DBs, you know, all of that type of equipment. Yeah. Um, and you know, a, a lot of the fixed plant um, was taken out. Uh, you know, the pumps and substations above that point, you know, was taken out in the next week. So they had a week to go back down and take what they could, and uh, they kept an eye on that yeah. and, and got it out of there. Yeah. So, yeah, a, a lot of luck involved, you know. There's the fact was no, you know, we were, we had people either going up or going down at that period. It went bang. We had no drillers underground. Um, you know, there was, there was people away that night. Um, that, that would normally have been on shift. So, so many things could have changed that could have changed the result. And, and we were so lucky at the end of the day, everyone, Walked away and enjoyed Christmas. Because you know? uh, as I said to you before, like when something a catastrophic event happens like this, you usually they say, "Oh, look, all the holes in the cheese lined up for this to happen." But as we said for this incident, all these holes in the cheese have lined up that no one was killed. Yeah, like, yeah, that is just and, the and I think part. I think we were so lucky, yeah. so lucky. There were so many things that you know, ten, fifteen minutes either way, or whatever, um, there were so many things that went wrong for us in that shift that made things happen the way they did. You know, yeah. the fact the valve didn't open, um, the fact that, you know, we, we you know, uh, left the jumbo on the surface and, you know, all of these things, these decisions we made, not, not through, you know, just more through luck, yeah. um, meant that we ended up with a pretty good result for, for us underground. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, 
yeah, incredible story. And um, yeah, I'm I'm glad I it's probably one of the first times I've told the full story. And you know, it, it's almost 20 years to the day. It happened, you know, just before Christmas '99. So it's yeah. actually good to kind of relive it. And I, I had to sit down and write it down because 20 years. A lot of water under the bridge, pardon the pun. Pardon but, uh, <laughs> and, and as you said, it would have given you shivers just because oh, yeah. you write the transcript, you're like reliving the mind. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I thank Phil Bremner. I, I contacted him. He was the underground manager and he helped me get a few few details as well of, you know, who was on shift because there's a couple of guys' names I couldn't quite remember, especially when you start talking um you know, Ralph's real name's, um, you know, um, Adrian Hunter, you know. So, um, you know, just things like that I, I couldn't quite remember. So, yeah, Phil, Phil helped us out with a bit of info and we had a good chat about that. And, uh, yeah, a bit of a walk down memory lane on it all. Yeah. Now, you, you might have said it at the start. How old were you when this happened, when you were young shift boss? 25. 25. Now, this yeah. is the most admirable thing, I think, that – you're 25 years old. You're you're a shift boss, but you, you've been presented with this tidal wave coming towards you. Pardon the pun again. Mm. And in the split second, you've right. Where's me, blokes? Get out! Disregarded everything of piece of machinery, infrastructure, essentially just hightailed it out. Mm. Um, you just you just notice sometimes that younger people i've seen myself do it you you you, you always think of meters and tons you're not thinking of bigger picture things mm. like that that looks like the most that's the most impressive thing to me that you've just taken control of such a yeah. catastrophic event and to get everyone out of the hole and not you didn't gamble at all yeah well you know look, do you reflect on it that well way? what steps did we t- take you know we took big ones in the opposite direction you know yeah. it was just like let's get the hell out of there you know yeah. that's what it was all about but yeah, it's um, it's pretty scary when you are not sure you've accounted for everyone. Yeah, like that feeling is is not good. Um, you know, again, I was relatively confident, but you know, when you when, when the consequence is so high, you never um, you, you know, you never really really con- um, you know, confident. So it was a good feeling when you know I got up the top and went through it, and everybody spoke to me and. Um, yeah, it was it was good to know that we had everyone. But yeah, pr- pretty pretty scary. Twenty five, you know, sounds sounds pretty young. But you know, we've been I'd been doing it for four four years. You know, been in the game, and you know, mm. yeah, th- thought I knew everything. Like most people, have been underground <laughs> for five minutes. But you know, if you put it into context, was listening to another podcast the other day on the um, on the moon landing and mission control. The average person in there was twenty six years age. Really. So, you, you know, that puts it into context. So, yeah, you yeah. know, young people could do some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, we should all kind of reflect on that as we get a bit older. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah it was it was pretty young to be in charge of a crew, you know, but, um, you know, I'd had a few years underground and we knew what we had to do. And um, I think one of the things that is great about our industry is safety is actually – uh, front and center you know yeah. the, the more you look around at other industries you kind of shake your head at what you see you know guys cutting bricks and you know all the stuff and people with no hearing protection you know just around town it, it just yeah. it's just extraordinary we would never think to do it you know i can't even have a beer at lunchtime with our barbecue in a minute because i just can't get it in my head 
that you can drink and go back to work. You know, it's just. I remember so I think, you telling me that you went like you you had lunch with someone from another industry. Oh, I had a lunch with a banker. Yeah, and uh, he said, "Oh, come and have lunch. Yeah, do you want a beer?" I'm like. What, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> I, he had a beer and I just couldn't bring myself. I think it's just our industry. And yeah. um, so, you know, we can be pretty proud of how safe our industry yeah. is, you know, not to say we're incident free, but I tell you, what, I think in general, we do a pretty bloody good job of looking after our people. And, and that starts from day one. Mm. You know, that starts, well, it's drilled, you, you know, yeah. even back then, you know, yeah. we, you know, you do your inductions and, you know, you wear your safety glasses and you do all these stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. No. It's a it's a good industry, and you know I I you know brushed myself off after that, and I took what I learned from it and moved on. And you know every time I do a study or anything now, you know whatever, I'm always you know you use your wisdom from past and mm. to to plan and make decisions going forward. Yeah. And um, you know this incident, I think about it. With every study, you know, while doing every pump station and doing everything, how are we going to design this and have we got some contingency in there for extra capacity and, you know, yeah, you're always thinking about, um, you know, the consequence of what you've learned. And what and the consequence of having, as you said, the extra capacity for something that you don't know is there. Mm. Well, yeah, that's right. And I suppose the the flip side of that is over engineering, and um, that's one of my biggest gripes. I, I hate it. Ask my guys is, you know, being an engineer is you know using the resources you've got the most efficient way you can. Um, you know, anyone can over engineer, yeah. but uh, a, a real engineer designs it um, the most efficient way possible. Yeah. Um, but you know, you've still got to have in your back of your mind you've got to have a little bit of capacity. You know, you look at GR engineering every. Every processing plant they design, you know, a million ton a year is always going to be able to do 1.2. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so you, yeah. you could be smart about yeah. over engineering, but it's more about, I suppose, contingency capacity rather than um, wastefulness. Yeah. So that's, I suppose, the essence of being a good engineer. Is looking at in, like mine infrastructure in general, talking about over engineering, is the one thing that you'd nearly want to over engineer every time? is your pumping system because that is essentially the one thing that can shut your mind down if uh, you have extra water intake. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think you've always got to have um, some uh, contingency capacity. And, you know, if, you, if you're pumping 20 litres a second and you're putting in pumps for 20 litres a second, you want another pump. You know, you always got to have a, have a duty and, and a spare. Yeah. Always have a spare. So, you know, if... if Two pumps can do the duty, always put in three, you know, yep. so always have a spare. So I think that's probably enough generally. Um, if your hydrology has been done properly, you know, just always have a spare. So always assume one pump's broken. Yeah. And, and design your system around that. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's probably, you know, a nice little rule of thumb when yep. it comes to primary pump stations. So looking back on the afterwards, once you brush yourself off, mm. off as you explained, how did everyone cope with it? Did it, people handle it differently? Did everyone go get another job straight away? Did some people get a bit rattled by what happened? Uh, look, yeah, look, um, I, I don't think people got all that ratted, r- rattled. Not that I really knew about it because pretty much Elton, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of counselling or, or any for that for that matter. I, I don't know if it was needed or not. It wasn't for me. But, um, uh, you know, most people didn't weren't at the forefront of the incident. They just yeah. got out of the mind. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Like a few, few of the guys. So it was probably me, Glenn, and 
and uh, Daniel, excuse me, Flog, um, you know, were the probably the ones that saw anything interesting. Um, but, you know, Elton just moved quickly on getting everyone a job. Yeah. You know, that's what they did. So straight away I was back over to Black Swan and um, a few of the guys went to Cali, quite a few of the guys. So I know uh, Flog went over to Cali and... Um, yeah, and, and Mick Naylor went across to Fortnum because um, Elton had that at the time. Um, yeah, so they did what they can. And then the, the local guys like um, Agro and and uh, Ralph and, and that and the Clow brothers, um, they went to Cadia because Cadia, oh, sorry, uh, Ridgeway, Ridgeway was, was yeah. then. Cadia didn't exist. So they all went there. So I think pretty much everyone just dusted themselves off and went and got another job, got on with it. Yeah. Um, which was which was you know a good result in the end. So, yeah, yeah. No, very all a good result. Mm. What what advice have you got for a shift boss in your sit in that situation? I guess the mentality you've got to have to act quickly in a situation like that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, whether we could have, I could have foreseen something or do something better. I, I doubt it. You know, I think that that event was. Um, unprecedented in a way. Um, you know, I, I can't think of another, uh, another time there's been an underground catastrophic failure with water. I know there's been some with paste walls and so forth, but, um, I, I think, you know, as a shift boss, you've just got to have your finger on the pulse. And if there's an issue, um, don't be afraid to do something about it. Like, um, I didn't ask the foreman if I could leave the jumbo in the workshop and go and fix this pump issue. Um, I just went and did it because I knew in my heart that was the right thing to do um, at that time. Um, uh, you, you know, everything is all about the decline in a mine. You know, keep pushing that decline. And I could see that we were going to lose the decline if we didn't make some changes to our pumping system. Yep. So I wasn't going to ring, you know, Murray at 6 o'clock at night and ask permission to to do that. I just thought, bugger it, I'm, I'm going to do it. And if I get a wrap on the knuckles tomorrow, too bad at least – at least the decline's dry. Mm. So, you know, that's – I think you've just got to make a call and um, and stick to it. Know where your people are. People are. Um, you know, uh, that that was a good thing. I kind of – well, I was pretty confident I knew where everyone was. Um, you know, we did the right thing in firing. You know, we didn't leave people down there while we fired or, you know, we didn't break any rules. Or yep. So, you know, just – I think most people know the difference between right and wrong and I think the more times you stay – on the right side of it, the the luckier you get. Yeah. So it would have been just so interesting to know how loud, as you said, that noise that they heard. Yeah. Thinking it might have been a toil a dong getting dong a door getting slammed. If if you were if people were underground, if you were independently firing underground, yeah. how loud that noise would have been like a yeah. hanging wall failure to induce a catastrophic well, flood. The, the the stoke was choked off. So, okay, yeah. so there might not have been, you know, an air blast of any description or anything like that. Yeah. So the only one person underground was the grader operator in an open cab grader, three quarters away up the mine. He didn't hear anything. Yeah. Um. So yeah, don't don't know. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a, a big air blast or anything like that. So yeah, yeah, probably might not have heard much. Yeah. Great story. That yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah. Like, like, great, great, great is probably great. Yeah, remarkable story, but not not probably great in a positive way. But, yeah, but very, very positive in terms of yeah, what that everyone got out. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the, the outcome, was, outcome was fantastic, and yeah, so yeah. But some awesome lessons to be learned about not 
gambling in a situation like that. If like if you see something like that, to like just having that will to act to actually abandon a whole mine, yeah, for the safety of the people, irregardless of yeah. losing the whole mine, yeah. Yeah. So I think another takeaway is if you see something changing, you know, we'd seen increasing amounts of water out of this stoke, something's going on and just maybe risk assess what that might mean, you know, bring it up, put your hand up and say, look, I'm not comfortable. We're seeing more water. We're seeing more noise. We're seeing more dust coming out or, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's a change. Just, just ask the question, I suppose, make sure it's not leading to something bigger. And in the context of a whole mine getting shut down, if you're not like, like say, shutting down a state for 24 hours to actually stop, think, and monitor mm. in the grand scheme of things is yeah. not much. Yeah. Like, not, not that saying that would have been done in your situation, but just in a general situation, as you said, if something's changing, you're getting cracks that haven't appeared before. Yeah. Uh, that stop for 24 hours is probably a very good thing to do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Oh, awesome, Macca. Thanks very much for that. And uh, thanks for writing it down. And, hope, oh, God, that was – I hope people get a lot out of that. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, no, on look, many levels. So. Yeah. I'll just, I've got the list of the guys that were on, on shift that night. I've got to put I, that I photo just, up too. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's got a few of the boys. But it was obviously myself, Adrian Hunter, Daniel Devine, uh, Kevin Considine, which is uh, POS, um, Matt Hander, Glenn Clower, uh, B. Anderson, can't remember who that, I think that was the, um, might have been the fitter, uh, James Porter and Kenny Bright, car called Kenny the Great Operator. So that was the team. There you go. Well, yeah. make sure you let them know to have a listen yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they do want to relive it. Yeah. Right, mate, I'll get it so I can smell the barbecue yeah, coming no, I'm on ready soon. To go. Thanks very much for that, Macca. No worries. Good thanks thanks much. very much. Jeez. All the best. <laughs> Great story, Macca. And thanks very much for having me in at the NTech offices again, mate. And thanks for the barbecue. Must be a bloody good butcher in Subiaco. Anyway, look forward to many more cool stories like this in 2020. Get more happening. Loving it. Stay safe out there, everyone. Hooroo from Life of Mine.